2016 has been a great year for FX Medicine. We've celebrated the first anniversary of our dedicated website, fxmedicine.com.au. And we're also very honoured and proud to be the recipients of the Complementary Medicines Australia CMA Award for Most Outstanding Contribution to Research, Education and Training. We love bringing you relevant content which is designed to improve safety and clinical proficiency. We're so very grateful for your continued support and please do let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future by dropping us a line on fxmedicine.com.au, Twitter or Facebook. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today, all the way from God's country, that is the Gold Coast in Australia, is Rebecca Guild. Rebecca studied naturopathy and Western herbal medicine at the Academy of Natural Therapies and graduating in 2003. Beck's worked in pharmacy, her own clinic, in varying capacities for one of Australia's largest practitioner supplement companies, and more recently as the editor and curator for FX Medicine. Rebecca is now involved in complementary medicine education, sales and marketing, digital and social media, and she's a passionate advocate of naturopathic medicine in the integrative health model. She has a keen interest in the regulatory landscape of naturopathic medicine and likes to inspire current and future students to strive for meaningful careers in the industry. Now, today's podcast will investigate the practical aspects of treating newborns and toddlers, which she has some experience. So we'll get into how you get that yucky medicine into miserable kids who traditionally refuse natural medicine, let alone pharmaceutical drugs. I'd love to welcome Rebecca Gill to FX Medicine. Welcome, Beck. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. <laughs> now, Beck, you and I have worked so closely over the years, you're basically like my sister. And <laughs> and I've got to say, I'll, I'll tell our listeners, like, I, I really do admire you. I've, I remember years ago um, how I recommended you for a position, and you have just blossomed since that day. Um, and I truly think you're an you're extremely powerful woman, mother, wife to um, Aaron. And um, I just think you're an incredible human being, and I'd like to really honour you. So, yeah, thanks for all your work. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thankfully, you can't see me blushing. Yeah, you magic of audio. <laughs> you so owe me coffee, <laughs> <laughs> Beck. Take our listeners through your background because you've got a nice little interesting story about how you became interested in natural medicine and indeed how your career progressed. Right. Yeah, I do. Um, so I suppose to a lot of people um, that I've spoken to over the years, natural medicine tends to be some some kind of calling or, or something that they've had a really prolonged interest in or perhaps something that they've been drawn to through illness of their own. And my story is nothing like that. Um so for me, I actually had a gap year between high school and um, and college and I went and moved interstate and sort of lived away from my family and on returning, which I promised my mother I would do to come to uni, um, I got a job in a, a day and night chemist, um, which was perfect because um, they needed a junior 
and I needed a job that I could work at night and go to uni during the day. And it just was this um, job, really, that opened my eyes to natural medicine. I was in a pharmacy that was in a, in a tourist area in Surface Paradise, and a, a large part of why I was hired was because I could speak Japanese. So I um, was a lot of the time I was speaking Japanese about products like Blackmores and Nature's Own and, and Biogas, all these things that um, you know were traditionally in pharmacy back then. But yeah. I became through through their intense interest in fish oil and evening primrose oil and all these anti-aging supplements, that's how I got interested in it, was speaking to Japanese people in Japanese about supplementation. Um, so the next thing I know, I, 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 for the life of me, I don't know how or why I took the sleep of faith. It's so not like me. But I was talking to the pharmacist about how I was so very interested in, in the supplements and how does one learn more about that. And he sort of said, well, that's a naturopath. Never heard of a naturopath before in my life. Never visited one. You know, come from a family where you, you have a sniffle, you go to the doctor. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that that is what drew, drew, drew me into the industry, I suppose. And then from there, enrolled to study and was just enamored, really, by everything to do with food and herbs and and supplements as well, which obviously was a large reason why I sought that industry out in the first place. Mm. So, you know, going a long time, along that time period, I I finished college and I think with our college educations, they prepare us quite well for the prospect of being a clinician in clinic. But in a lot of ways, and, and perhaps this has gotten better since I graduated quite a while ago, but in a lot of ways, they don't prepare us for these alternate career bands. And so when I graduated, I had an opportunity to go into a clinic with um, a friend and colleague that I'd studied with, and she'd done acupuncture. And she was opening a business, and she said, look, I need a naturopath. I think you'd be great. Let's work together. So I went into the clinic, and we were right opposite a um, uh, like a primary school. So yeah. I did, in essence, work a lot with children. But um, it wasn't for me. I got into clinic and I thought, yes, great. I'm such a success. I was in, in my own business and this is really great. And I just, I really struggled to get up in the morning and go to work and enjoy myself. Mm. And I just, I didn't, it was a foreign feeling because for years I got up and went to work and bounced into work in the pharmacy and, and just loved every minute of it. So I knew straight away something wasn't right. And so I had to really sit down and reassess what it was that, put me here in the first place and then put me here in natural medicine. And that's when I went, well, hang on, it was it was kind of supplements. I'm going to seek out a role where I can really um, delve into that more deeply. And that is how I landed my job at Biocuticals. I applied to a couple of um, companies and, um, and I, I, yeah, Biocuticals <laughs> flew me to Sydney like within 24 hours of my resume going through and, and I sort of – it was a whirlwind. I had a job within a few days, and I was, I was just so very blessed for it to, to happen the way it did. And I couldn't ask. Yeah, but for it didn't happen by luck. Call. That's that's because of your acumen. <laughs> well, yes, thank you, but but um, yeah, I I just think I I was at the right place at the right time with the, with a, a good skill set and perhaps a, a decent head on my shoulders for someone who at the time was quite young. And um, I don't know. I, I, was in biocuticals 
in the customer service department and then progressed out into the field as a sales rep and, and later a manager. And it's just every element that I've or every touch point that I've been in in the company is, has taught me new skills. And I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be a curator of ethics medicine if I didn't have that really great kind of career progression. I, I want to go back a little bit because I want to concentrate on treating children. And you said you had a clinic across from a school. Can you take our listeners through what sort of patients you saw and what sort of conditions you helped to treat? Well, at the time, I saw, I did see quite a few children and it was, interestingly, it wasn't a lot of acute stuff. I think that back then, um, people didn't see naturopaths when they had colds and flus. They kind of saw naturopaths when, you know, they kind of had really complicated health issues and they maybe sought advice in a load of other locations. But in particular with kids with cognitive development issues or, you know, learning or behavioural issues, those were the things that I was seeing when I was in clinic. So mainly in kids between sort of four and um, ten mainly. But um, I also saw quite a few um, older women from menopause and things like that, which for me at the time, I was in my early 20s and I, I found that a struggle because um, they often didn't trust my advice, being that I was a, a young female and I couldn't possibly know what they were going through. Um, so that was a challenge. But, yes, yeah, mo- mostly and what I, what I remember most fondly of my time in clinic was um, working with kids. And I suppose, too, because back then I was coaching a little bit um, hockey and, and things like that, it also um, brought a few people in to see me as well. Yeah. So you said that you saw children with chronic issues and particularly cognitive issues. This was obviously before the age of iodine. that We didn't know about um, Professor Creswell Eastman's work back then, about the deficiency and just how insidious it was, indeed how prevalent it was throughout Australia. Did you see much or did you twig to issues of iodine or that you might attribute now to iodine that you might have treated differently back then? You know, I look back now at the kind of practitioner I was, obviously too being a fairly recent graduate, and just cringe at some of the choices I made, which were largely herbal because it was an area of comfort for me. And also to try, you know, we're talking about 2003, 2004, 2005, I do think that um, what we had available to us um, in terms of taste and palatability were also a pretty big issue. But to be honest with you, iodine was not even a blip on my radar back then. I I think that it hadn't hadn't been investigated to the level it is now, whereas nowadays, yes, absolutely, I would consider iodine status as something to definitely check for. And same with, you know, even methylation, hardly ever spoken about, um, whereas I think it's perhaps underlying in a lot of issues. But definitely diet and definitely I did use some herb, like some herbal formulas. And we did have a few kind of nutritional products back then that combined um, protein, vitamins, minerals, and, and a few herbs, which actually you can't get now. But, um, yeah, those were kind of the, the things I would have reached for back then. Diet fundamentally was what you would have to change. Doing, I used to do diet diaries, and you could just, I'd just circle. I'd have like a different coloured pen for the different um, key elements, uh, like dairy and wheat, and 
you, you would just, you would circle it and then that would be the entire diet is wheat and dairy. And so if you just, you didn't have to remove it, but just restricting it down and adding in more vegetables and you would get these really great and positive results with their, their concentration and their focus. And possibly now, and particularly after listening to Perlmutter on the weekend, you know, just coming down inflammation in their neurological system was pretty much what it what it seems to come down to. What I think is interesting, though, is the things that you mentioned that, you know, have evolved with regards to methylation, and now we're looking at SNPs, so we're measuring these. Whereas before we might have had an approach, oh, you know, look at behaviour with folic acid or something. And let's face it, naturopaths were doing that a, a generation before medicoats were doing, even accepting folic acid. You know, we've learned in naturopathic college that, you know, the universal cofactors for every enzymatic re- reaction in the body was zinc B6 and magnesium. So to always consider, you know, wh- whether people were getting enough of that from their diet or if we needed to supplement with it and just those three nutrients alone, you could make profound changes to their health. And so I think we were doing it, but we, we perhaps didn't realise um, all the mechanisms yeah. by which it was affecting change. That's right. That's right. Uh, what I think is interesting is back in my day of nursing when I didn't believe in natural medicine at all, I think it's interesting that you know people say, I believe in that stuff. It doesn't require your belief. But anyway... Um, <laughs> you know, when I was totally against natural medicine and thought it was all hoo-ha... Um, I remember reading things about uh, basically naysaying or you know uh, arguing against the restriction of dairy in in conditions like, for instance, asthma. And the, I remember reading the article saying that it didn't it didn't increase mucus, but it did affect gaseous exchange. And then that was it. Drops mic, walks away. No further investigation. Hang on, it did affect gaseous exchange. And you're not going to investigate this further in something like asthma? <laughs> I thought that was a real sort of what? But anyway, it didn't twig back then. Now it twigs. And it's like, wow, how how small-minded researchers were back then, basically in just saying, therefore, disprove and see you later, bye, whereas that was really an important issue that they should have gone, but wait, there's something to this. But this is historically the problem with... Um, you know, maybe more modern medical approaches is they're looking for that one thing, that one genetic <laughs> yeah. variant that they can tap into or that one pathway in the body that they can tap into instead of really understanding that the body has so many layers of interconnectedness and you can't just view these things in isolation. Um, so now with the way things are progressing, particularly with integrative and functional medicine experts who can view this stuff in in a much more imaginative way, I think now we're starting to get to the point where we've actually got some academics who can talk to the modern medical academics and really make them understand that, that they're being a little bit too insular in the way they're looking at this stuff. And, yeah. I, and that's what's going to progress us forward with, the, with research in Absolutely. medicine and, and these, these paradigms. Absolutely. And and just, so, I guess, incorporating my comment about Professor Creswell Eastman and his land-breaking research on, you know, a, a mineral deficiency, iodine, which has resurfaced because we have an old continent called Australia. But just going on from there, what sort of things would you do differently now looking back on that practice? I think even though I was making dietary changes, um, I don't think even then I 
I personally had enough um, buy-in into just how profound food can be as medicine. I think now there's a whole movement to that and and because of, let's say, social media in particular and the movement to understand how we can incorporate low allergenic foods and, and make them into really delicious dishes because there's this chronic sharing of information and content thanks to the internet and in particular social media. I think now I could be far more imaginative and also offer parents so many more resources. There's so many more cookbooks and there's so many more websites that you could direct them to and therefore you could probably affect change a lot faster. Yeah. And definitely, obviously, the the supplementation or the availability of of, um, treatments now versus 10 years ago 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's if, been a lot if, more refinement, hasn't there? Yeah, a lot more refinement. And also in this country, we've also got far more access to things. And in particular, in the last 12 to 18 months, we've so many more um, nutrients and herbs and things that are, that are listed ingredients that we can actually use now, whereas we didn't necessarily have them. And even dosages have changed. Like, Things like CoQ10, back then you could only get like 20 milligrams. (laughs) And nowadays you can buy 300 milligrams in one capsule. You know, these kinds of things are a revelation. Well, 500 million billion organisms in a, in a, in a sachet or a powder or even in a capsule, I'm sure, in the not too distant future, whereas we were were using, you know, 100 million back then (laughs) in a capsule. It's it's just so different how far we've progressed. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious back then where people would go, this has got 10 billion? Wow. You know, that was, whoa. Whereas two, yeah. five billion was the norm. Yeah. Or people going, oh, no, I think that's a little bit too strong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think what you said earlier, Beck, about regarding, you know, changes to diet, for instance, I don't subscribe to the necessarily wholesale restriction of wheat and dairy. I don't, that's my view. However, I think if there's a health issue that might respond to it, it's worth a try if you've tried everything else and doesn't work. So I really think these are important dietary approaches when, as you said, you use different pens and you were circling all of these foods that were in that food group alone with with the restriction of... um, of these other healthy food groups. And that comes down to the message that we're getting across to people was not a healthy, balanced diet. It was mm. concentrate on wheat and dairy because they're easy. Yeah, and it was what we were taught. But mm. I, I agree with you. I don't like to demonise um, any food group. I think that it's much better to teach people to have a healthy relationship with food. And in particular with kids, it, there's no other important patient yes. group than with children to teach them to have a healthy relationship with food, but also a healthy understanding with how food works in their body, why they would choose a certain food over over a, a not-so-healthy food or this, this idea or this concept of sometimes food. I know now, and this is part of the reason why I would definitely do things more differently, is when you're a parent, you you are constantly in this pick your battles um, kind of, you <laughs> Absolutely. know. <laughs> and it's easy to be the practitioner sitting across from a parent, shaking your head going, just don't give them this stuff. Mm. But when maybe they are a fussy eater and you're deeply concerned they're not getting enough nutrition, I know we, we can fall into this habit of, oh, we'll just give them anything rather than than, than have nothing. But, um, yeah, the, the demonising of food groups, 
I don't subscribe to that either. However, I think that there is a very good call for the judicious removal of certain food groups for a period of time because they can become um, things that target our inflammatory and our immune system. And you need to kind of remove these these agents so that the immune system in the body can kind of calm down and reset and come back to a sense of balance and then you can introduce them. So this is where that whole concept of rotation elimination diet kind of come in. But I think what happens is with with people, with patients in particular, we need to really get better at explaining to them that just because you rotate, eliminate, and maybe you haven't reacted doesn't mean you can have it every day yeah. for three meals a day. Yeah. There's sort of a set point at which you need to have it. And it's so it can't be all the time. And you have like a really good rotation of food through the diet. Otherwise, the body the body might not be telling you that it's reacting to it because it's got inflammation at such a high rate uh, to cope with that constant stressor on the system. So, yeah, there's definitely a judicious removal of it. And then that's why some people go, oh, well, I removed it mm. and now I react to it. Well, no, it's not about now you react to it. It's about now your you know, cortisol and your inflammatory coping mechanisms aren't at this maximum surveillance level. They've actually dropped down because they've, they feel like they've, the threat has been reduced. And so the next time you have it, the immune system comes in and, and just, you know, sends it into chaos. Uh, so there's that kind of um, food removal, food adding back in or use of food. It's so interesting, but I think it, it becomes really difficult for people to understand. I still haven't found a really great way to necessarily get that across to people. <laughs> yeah, so well actually you're really good at it. Like one of the things I, I loved about what you said there was about how you talk to the child, your child as a parent or at your patient child as a practitioner and how you engage them in actively choosing the right sort of foods. Um so you know like I I just think we really as practitioners we need to be really confident and clear about, as you say, not demonizing a food, but using the correct choices, if you like, to choose the, the good ones. So the child feels in control rather than mummy makes me eat this or daddy makes me eat this. Um, the second one there, of course, is the correct messages to the parents so that they choose the right foods to purchase. And I've got to say, one of the best ways I've found for this, um, when when there's a particular issue that you might need some sort of directed diet is um, Victus Health. I, I can't applaud those ladies enough. The work that they've done in not just saying, oh, here's a food list, don't eat those and do eat these. Well, they're, they're in abundance throughout the internet. You can get them anywhere. But how will that food look on your table? Now that is the key. That's where Victus Health shines. So it shows you what that good meal will look like. Ah, now we have something that I'd like to eat. It's a really great resource for teaching people at that very initial stage when they've first been faced or confronted with um, the fact that they have to remove or restrict a certain food group. And it's just so overwhelming because I think I remember a, um, I was actually a naturopath working in a health food environment once um, pointed this out. And I probably hadn't put a lot of thought into it until it was heard that mention it to it and just said that, Often what happens with naturopaths, they're really great at telling people what they can't eat. Yeah. 
but not necessarily <laughs> at what they can. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, her she felt like her role um, within health food was to be that next step in the chain to teach people to implement some of the changes maybe that, that they've been asked to do by their, um, you know, clinical practitioner. So, you know, and it's, it's, re- it's really true, and Victor bridges that gap. It gives you, it gives the practitioner in clinic who doesn't have hours and hours and hours to sit down and, and, and fundamentally coach them through what to do, but it gives them that next step, somewhere they can go for the information, where they can maybe input some of their favourite family dishes like spag bowl or, you know, chicken cacciatore or whatever it might be, yeah. but then, you know, ch- choose out the various um, allergens that you can't um, have during that restriction phase. And and it'll populate a way to make that food, but in a in the in a way that reflects what you need in that current health issue. So, it's yeah, it's it's very very right. And to go back to your point about the correct messages to parents and to kids, I think one of the biggest learning learnings I've had as a parent is that just because I don't eat it, me as an adult doesn't mean my child won't eat it. You know, I, I, there's not a lot of things I don't eat. But I definitely don't eat peas <laughs> and I don't <laughs> eat beans. But um, I serve them up to my son just because, you know, he might like those foods. And, you know, this, I'm not a big fan of eating an abundance of fruit, but my son will eat so much fruit uh, all the time and he loves it. And I'm so glad that he has that healthy engagement with food that he reaches for the fruit bowl before he sticks his head in the pantry to look for things that are in a packet. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that he was definitely showing signs of being a fussy eater. And I had lots of conversations with my mother about this because I was a chronically fussy eater. And what I think um, over time is that sometimes we as parents, like I said earlier, have to pick your battles. But I think that what what can happen is that just because it's easy, we're so tired, we're worn out, mm. um, we don't necessarily want to go into a battle with our child about what they're eating or their food. So sometimes we choose the path of less resistance and we might give in to, you know, they want noodles or they want, um, you know, two-minute noodles that were for me as a child. Gosh, I could have lived on those. But, you know, these days I cringe to think about that. Please cringe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're terrible. But I think I didn't have um, an understanding until I went to college and learnt naturopathy about how those foods fueled my body. Mm. I I legitimately went to college thinking, well, at the very least, I'll learn what vitamins I can take to make up for the fact that I don't eat well. Mm. And, you know, more for me, because what I learned was you can throw all the best supplements and all the best herbal ingredients at a person or in a child or an adult, but if you haven't got their diet right, you know, that's the, that's the landscape from the the springboard from which everything else comes from. If you haven't got that right, it is like flogging a dead horse. Yeah, you, it's just you, like you're going to get nowhere. It's just like building a, a house, a, a, a gorgeous palatial house on shoddy foundations. It ain't going to last long, mate. Yeah, yeah it's going <laughs> to sink, and you're going to have cracked walls and dodgy ceilings. And mm. yeah, it's, you've got to get that right first. And I think we need to be teaching kids how certain foods fuel their body. So I know when when my son started to show fussy eating tendencies, I started small with, you know, one vegetable at a time. Let's eat some carrots because you know how you said you're afraid of the dark? Well, actually, if you eat carrots, they help with your night vision yeah. and you'll be able to see better. And, you know, it's got vitamin A. And he, So now when we sit at the kitchen table, he says, what is this good for? And what's that good for? And what does this do? So some of them might be 
slight half-truths and things I've just come up with so that I can give him a really holistic approach to his food, but broccoli is for blood in our house and carrots are for night vision. And um, <laughs> I'm, just imagining, are- I'm just imagining you telling your son, now carrots are for night vision so you can see those <laughs> monsters. You tell me they weren't real. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just say if you want to be a superhero like Spider-Man or you know, Batman or any of the other heroes that he's currently obsessed with, then you need to eat your vegetables for your muscles. And do you think that Spider-Man can and um sorry, that's probably more Batman can leap buildings in a single bound? That was Superman, man. Okay. Me? Just let's get these superheroes right. <laughs> So you have gained a lot of your practical expertise in dealing with children from indeed your life experience of having your your son. So tell me, because like you taught me a lot in how to get yucky medicines into kids. And some of them were the simplest things that I had forgotten, like, for instance, the oxymel, the onion syrup. So can you take our listeners through a few of these simple home remedies that are just gold when dealing with these particular childhood, you know, coughs and colds and ills um, that can be, you know, really upsetting to parents or disrupting to parents. They just make you tired because your child's awake all night coughing. Um, I learned so much from that. I think it's important for every parent to have an understanding of, of some home remedies. Because if motherhood has taught me anything, children get sick on public holidays and at 11, 12, and 1 a.m. <laughs> so you, you kind of, you inadvertently need to have some of these things up your sleeve. They should almost teach them in, you know, parenting classes. Um, but yeah, definitely onion syrup. I, I can't even remember who. Um, it was, I'm sure it was, a, it was a, another practitioner who said, why don't you try onion syrup? And I went, what is onion syrup? <laughs> and so now everybody who is in um, my life knows how to make onion syrup. And I make it for pregnant women yep. and and children. And it's so easy. It's, it's practically laughable. Ridiculously you, easy. It, it's ridiculously easy. You chop, you chop an onion you know, and it can be the skankiest, ugliest onion in your jar. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a pretty onion. It doesn't matter if it's red or brown either because that's the next question I always get. And you just chop it loosely and you toss it into a saucepan with, and cover it with a bit of water. So you want to make enough that you can be sipping on it for a day or two. But there's, there's a particular way of, of you layer it, don't you? Yeah, well, you're thinking of where you slice an onion and yep. you can put it into a jar and then you um, put honey into it and basically just let the honey um, come through the onion and produce a very thick um, syrup. Yeah, but it was it, it was a layer of it, onion, it, layer of honey, layer of onion, layer of honey, and then you top it up. Yeah, but to be honest with you, it's not quick. You need to be letting that <laughs> okay. steep. Okay, Yes. <laughs> you need to be letting that steep for days and days. So like realistically, you need to have that kind of thing ready to go maybe in your fridge. Right. Um, and you, you can I – think, I think that's what um, – maybe that's like an oxymel that's yes. a bit different. For, yes. for my onion syrup, I, I put – I chop an onion, I put it into a um, – a pot, yeah. I cover it with a little bit of water and I add whatever sweetener that I have. So it, uh, under kids, under two, one or two, generally, you're supposed to avoid honey. Um, so 
Og hvor finder man ikke det stof? You know, hvor sugar, origin, um, rice syrup or something like that. Yeah. But the sugar helps. Obviously make it palatable, but um, helps with drawing out some of the, um, you know, sulfurous content, what yeah. have you. So, and you just boil it until the water starts to change color and the onions start to go quite soft. You, at that point, you can strain it off, um, but I tend to leave the onions in it and just let it steep and do a jar and I throw it straight into the fridge. So really, you can have that ready within sort of half an hour or so where it's drinkable for anyone of any age because yeah. it's cooled down enough. Yeah. So that's where I like fast remedies because, like I said, this kind of thing invariably happens in the middle of the night yes. or <laughs> on a public holiday and you want something that you can have ready to go very quickly. It seems to be one of the, the quickest, most soothing home remedies that's safe and really soothing for, like, irritated coughs and things like that. Definitely. And you can add you can add things to it if you want to. You can chop some ginger into it, although for little ones, sometimes that can be a bit spicy. Yeah. Same with garlic. I find sometimes they get a little bit funny about it being spicy. So I've tended not to do that. But I've definitely, for really dry and irritating cough, I often will add sage. Not from my garden, because my green thumb is dead. But my mother-in-law has a wonderful garden. So <laughs> I will go and pick fresh sage from her. But, you know, if you don't have fresh Fresh sage, you can just, well, I've done it before. I've used powdered sage as well, which also helps to kind of soothe the cough. So, yeah, you can really experiment with it once you've got it. it. And it's not thick and syrupy. It's sort of liquidy. So I used to be able to put it straight into my son's bottle and he would be able to have it when he was quite little. And he would just happily um, have that while he was sort of laying down while he wasn't feeling well, watching cartoons or whatever. So that is probably one of the easiest things. These days, though, you know, he's four, so he's graduated to much more robust therapies. Like, I can get him to take um, very weak shots of apple cider vinegar now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I particularly use um, a herbal range called Kiwi Herb, which has got oh, a nice. bunch of immune therapies for kids, um, you know, like a chest and cough syrup and a, what's called D-stuff for kids, which I use for clearing nose or airways if these particular slips particularly nutrify. Um So, you know, they're, they're really easy. But, yeah, home remedies are, are brilliant. I've also used, in conjunction with, you know, my products that contain elder, for example, for fever, um, somebody suggested to me trying egg socks. Well, I've never heard of that Now before, tell me about this because this is weird. <laughs> it is weird and it's one of those it's I have horrible visions of, of hard-boiled eggs squished throughout the floor. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's nothing quite that great. <laughs> so with egg socks, you um, break an egg and you just get the egg white and you get a pair of socks and you um, soak the socks in it and then you put the socks on the feet and what I do is I usually throw a freezer bag over the top of that and another pair of socks. And so if I find if everything else I've done hasn't, kind of brought a fever under control, just adding that one extra element um, really helps to soothe a fever. Really? So Watch that bring, yeah. And it may not even have anything to do with the eggs. It might just be that it's so cold. But I have to wonder if because of these eggs and eggs have like anosophil content, sulfur content, if it is in fact having an effect. But obviously nobody's done a clinical trial, but I can tell you – you know, when I've used my belladonna and I've used my pulsatilla 
or I've used my um, elderflower and, and nothing has um, brought the fever to a place where I'm comfortable. I only start to really get deeply concerned if there's fever with lethargy. But if, you know, if I haven't brought back some of his um, vitality from everything else, then I'll try that and it, it, I've found it to help. So, you know, sometimes, like I said, in the middle of the night, you need something, you're a bit desperate or you're waiting for your medication to kick in. Some of these things to know what to reach for can be brilliant yeah well i think what what interests me about these folk remedies if you like or these old wives tales quote unquote is i always have to ask the question okay how did it start and if it's an old wives tale how did it remain in circulation if it didn't work because surely you know i'm i haven't got time to go into it but you know these aboriginals that um crushed up the nuts of a cycad washed them in a stream for three days and then made a bread Okay, how did they learn that it was three days? How many people they go through? You know, so it's kind of like this has happened over eons. So I think we need to start at least questioning it and going, hey, is there really something to this? Um, yeah. Onion syrup, though, to me, like it's a, it's done. It's 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 just it works. It's awesome. But just yeah. moving on to something that it's at least got some um, evidence on its use, and that's chicken soup. But you need to be cautious about the chicken soup that you choose. Correct. Well, um, yeah, I wouldn't be choosing a chicken soup in a can because that's probably not going to do very much for you. A whole lot of sugar. Because they're packed full of sugar and salt. Um, but I find um, making a, a, a chicken soup at home, and there's a million different ways to do it, but my way is pretty simple. If I've got pre-made chicken broth, well, then great, I will use that, you know, where I've boiled the the bones and and made a broth with, you know, probably leek and carrot and onion um, and probably some thyme and just kind of boiled it down and made like a great broth with a good gelatin base, which in itself has really great kind of protein and immune enhancing benefits. Shout out to Pete Evans here. (laughs) Yeah, shout out Pete Evans who's made broth cool. Um, but, you know, if I don't have that, then I'll just simply – I've always got chicken breasts in the freezer, so I'll just cut chicken breasts into really small pieces. I'll throw um, it into a pot. But sorry, first what I do is I put um, garlic, chili – leave the chili out for the kids – but garlic, chili, ginger, and chopped onion in the bottom of a pan with a swig of oil, whatever you've got, whether it's olive oil or coconut oil. Please don't use vegetable oil, people. Um, but, yeah, boil that down until the onions start to get a bit soft and um, it gets really fragrant. Then I add in um, just a – I've boiled my kettle and I um, put my powdered vegetable stock, which I go for a good brand always, and I mix that into the top. And then I add the chicken that I've stirred and chopped up and I let that kind of come to a boil. Once it's come to a boil, I lower the it to simmer and I actually um, have in the meantime beaten two eggs and I pour that into my chicken soup and stir it rigorously and it comes like a it looks like spider webs going into your chicken soup. Yeah. But what you've achieved with, with all of that chicken soup is you've got Garlic, ginger, and onion, which is just a trifecta for good immune health. You know, particularly chili if it's for adults, as a driver for these things to our extremities. More always taught in college to use turmeric and cayenne and things like that as drivers or circulatory stimulants. But um, so that trifecta. Plus, you've got the chicken for protein, and it's really soothing. I also add curry powder. 
because it just makes it taste awesome. Yeah. And um, and then the egg as well for, you know, I'm sure many different, um, it's such a complex uh, food, egg of full protein and lots of kind of, you know, mineral content and vitamins. So you've got this really delicious, really easy to digest and very soothing and comforting food that you can have even when you can barely get off your deathbed. Well, what about things? Oh, actually, firstly, I just want to point uh, um, out that I think it's interesting how you talk, spoke about the carcass of the chicken. Um, and and mm. rather than going into it, my, my wife makes an awesome chicken soup for, with using the carcass of a, a roast chicken. But Nigella Lawson, I remember commenting that she'd actually, she'd go around to um, her friend's places and if they had a chicken dish, she'd say, oh, can I have that carcass? So <laughs> she'd, yeah. take, she'd take these carcasses home from wherever she ate dinner <laughs> so that she could have a base for her broth. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, chicken broth made from chicken buying mm. is to die for. Yeah. It's so tasty. Um, and the other thing was things like, uh, you know, apple cider vinegar. Like some people might frown saying, oh, why are you giving that to kids and things like that? I think it's really interesting that we seem to have lost touch with these age-old foods that that we have now. It's almost like we've tried to medicalize them and, um, yeah. and, and therefore the medical profession frowns upon them because they're not a quote-unquote medicine. So it's kind of like this, this real alienation from what 100 years ago people would be going, yeah, of course. <laughs> like it's it's really weird. I think it's really weird we've lost touch with these base things and we're now overcautious. You know, I can't say obviously to give honey to um a child less than 12 months old because there seems to be some risk of um of um what it uh, botulinum. Um mm. It does surprise me that um, these age-old foods that, you know, have been eaten by the Hadza tribe in, our, in Africa for eons, still surviving, um, I don't know how many kids they lose to botulism each year from eating honey. You're so right. It's, there seems to be this flippant idea that doesn't doesn't matter what you eat, it won't affect your um, health outcome. So I've seen this time and time again, as you know, looking after um my grandmother's health over the years and in particular in her final few years she had a, a few issues with um gallbladder a, a gallbladder attack or acute infection and um I was just floored by the attitude by the medical um team that were looking after her that it wouldn't matter what she was eating but I, I said to them I beg to differ because she was only eating jelly and ice cream yeah, crazy. and yeah, and I'm like, you, you're actually, you've, you've switched her gallbladder off. Yeah. It's not having to do any work. So, of course, you know, it's like switching off a cement mixer. Things are going to get hard. You're not making that organ work and, and move. You need to be giving her, you know, mashed potato with butter and you need to be giving her inclusions of soft food. Like, whiz up her meats and add them all together and, you know, turn them into baby food, but please don't give her sweets. Um, and it's sure enough, I, you know, I was vindicated when she didn't get another attack at once I became quite um, strict with her diet, but it just it just really said to, spoke to me of kind of like the attitude that medicine has to diet that you know just your diet doesn't give you any control over your health and it is complete and total rubbish. Mm-hmm. And, your and diet they know this is where it's at. You, you, it, and yeah. yet, if you mention dash one or two, pretty med, Mediterranean diet, it'd be ah oh, yeah. 
So it's really funny. But I, yeah. I just want to move on a couple of things before we wrap up, and that is a soap and sugar poultice. I've never, ever heard of this, but I've heard you mention this. Can you take us through yeah. what this is? Where do you use it? I've heard of this because of my husband's grandmother. For years, I would just buy this a store-bought um, drawing cream if we got, you know, splinters or anything like that. But my husband works in construction, so, you know, parts of um, dr- when he's drilling things, he'll often get, you know, shards and shavings into his skin. And we've had some crazy things happen. And my son has an extreme fear of having splinters removed. And in the Montessori kinetic he's at, the whole place is made of wood. So yeah. we deal with this a lot. Yeah. But the soap and sugar poultice is you can use any kind of soap. It doesn't matter if it's a hand pump soap or it's a bar of soap. The bar of soap tends to work more effectively, uh, probably because of the tallow and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. But um, if you mix um, your sugar with the soap and turn it into a paste, place it over anything that you need to draw out of the skin uh, and then just cover it with a Band-Aid, not only will it soften the skin to make the removal really easy, but if you keep applying that day after day, right. it will eventually come out on its own. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't have known about that without my husband's yeah. grandmother. I definitely didn't learn that as part of naturopathic college. It was just that maybe growing up and the way I think, you know, she, she would have had that remedy probably for her own mother and they just, uh, the whole family uses it. So And it's so effective. I know I, I had a... A lady um, at hockey the other day, and she was limping, and she said, oh, I must have got glass in my foot when I went camping, and she she tried a few things to get it out, and called and I said, put a soap and sugar poultice, and she looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> but the next day, uh, sorry, two days later at training, she was there, and she was running, and she went, I did that, and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about another one that might seem really strange, a ginger bug? What's that? Sounds like a lolly to me. Ginger bug. Do you know, ginger bug is um, something I learned about from a previous guest you had on the podcast, Dr. Sarah Lance. Ah, yes. So I actually went to a kombucha making class with her and they taught the people of the class how to make a ginger bug. Um, So I can't take any credit for the remedy, but definitely Wuchi Kombucha share that remedy around and it's pretty much, um, it's a bit more involved, but yeah, when you put ginger and sugar and water into a, um, a canister and you steep it and it starts to create a fermentation um, that you get, obviously, through fermentation, you increase enzyme content, you yield nutrients and, and what have you, and ginger in itself is a you know, pretty good, pretty powerful powerhouse of nutrients in it. So it looks like a really easy one for um, you know people sold on fermentation to kind of have it on the go all the time in the house. Uh, for that stuff, it'd be really good for inflammation and wounds and wound care as well. But I probably, do you know the thing that I probably use the most um, for all kinds of sick, but in particular so I can get to sleep at night, is um, like a, what do I use? You keep air rub just because it's petroleum free, yep. but, you know, like a good um, lather of a, a vapor rub sort of thick. Thing kind of vapor rub cream onto the soles of the feet with a pair of socks on will actually, and if I hadn't witnessed this for myself, but it actually just stops nighttime coughing. So if any time my son is sick and you want to get some sleep in the night, definitely consider putting both on the feet. And it's another one of those ones that's really easy to tell parents um, that they can kind of have 
right there that when they're woken up at 1 or 2 a.m. with a coughing child, they can just do that and usually they'll sleep quite Quite well. You know what? You know what interests me there is that um, Chinese medicine will tell you that the cold um, enters your body through the feet and the back of the neck, and I just think it's yeah. really interesting that a lot of these rem- Western remedies involve things that you apply to the feet. And I might just put out a caution here because I have seen in years gone by somebody that put garlic, a garlic poultice, onto their feet, put a sock on overnight, and they got gangrene. So garlic being extremely sulfurous um, can be extremely dangerous if you don't watch it. And, you know, admittedly, yeah. this person was probably somebody that suffered from diabetes, had peripheral neuropathy, couldn't sense the burning and therefore it progressed. H- how, having yeah. said that, I think it's something that we should shy away from unless we are crystal clear about the time limit that, that these things should be applied. But the things that you've mentioned are really safe. Um, and yeah, I, I've I think got people a, forget the yeah, volatile oils yeah. <laughs> in garlic can be really yeah, that's right. Um, I, one of the things I like is is the good old that vapor rub type thing. Um, just putting it on my back. I mean, I will do it as an adult, and even mm. on my chest. When if I've got a really stinking cold, um, I will still use it as an adult. Um, and yes, I feel like a bit of a wimp when I'm doing it. But I think your interesting thing, the, the, the caveat there would be anybody who's got asthma, you've got to be really cautious with these vapours. But again, you say putting it on your feet, well, it's well away, well away from the respiratory system. So I don't think it's going to cause a problem. So it's probably salient advice there. Well, I always find putting it on feet with the little ones is, is, is better, but it's more effective. But yeah. hands down, it is more effective. And possibly because you have more pores in your feet anyway for transmission of, you know, if that even happens. But <laughs> The the thing that I don't have to worry about is it's really rare for your child to touch that site with socks on than if you put it on their chest and they rub their hand across it. Next thing it's in their eyes or, you know, whatever. So I definitely think feet is the way to go with little people. Yeah. Um, what about things like uh, a, a higher evidence um, supplement that's available on the market today? Indeed, this is a registered medicine. That's Caloba, Pelagonium. Mm. Tell me about mm. how you use that with your son and, and indeed other patients. Um, well, the great thing about Caloba, and I should probably preface this with, over the last 12 months, obviously cough syrup in children under six has just been completely wiped from the market. And I mean, like the pharmaceutical ones. The pharmaceutical ones, yes. Yeah, you cannot get them for kids under six. So it's been a real uh, opportunity for natural medicine to really shine in that age group. And um, I first was introduced to Caloba at a conference through Blackmores because they sell it. But, you know, you can get it as a herbal tincture, Pelagonia, and it's been available for a really long time. It's just sort of one of those ones I'd perhaps forgotten about. But the really great thing about it is it's pleasant tasting. It's not horrible. Well, Caloba is. Uh, it's definitely. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think it, it's not. It's really not. It's, 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 it's fresh tasting. It's not like a very strong herb like Echinacea. No, Caloba's nice. Like a, but Pelagonium yeah, as a fluid extract? Pelagonium is. I mean, you really? okay. it is still pretty, you know, it's fairly palatable compared to some other immune herbs that you might try and use. Like yeah. if you're trying to give it well, 
to a child. Oh, yeah, horrible. Absolutely. Run. Yeah. And yeah. echinacea can be particularly challenging unless it's, uh, you know, in a particular medium like um, glycerin, glycerin tract um, or yeah, honey. Yeah, I would like, only ever use it in a glycerin tract yeah. for kids yeah. because, um, yeah, it can be a bit punchy for them otherwise. Yeah. Oh, and scary, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting yeah. that um, my firstborn, um, his fifth word was echinacea. <laughs> I was quite proud of that. <laughs> the the thing is, too, like my son's been getting herbal and homeopathic remedies since he was, well, the first time he got unwell, which was probably around five or six months old, and he got a little cold. And now all I have to do is point a dropper in his direction, and he just opens his mouth and, and takes it, doesn't even ask what it is. So um, that, I think, you know, teaching them young is definitely says a lot. But I've used Coloba in particular, sort of croupy, bronchitis-like pops. It's uh, so, so great for that. Mm. Um, and, and you can, I mean, there are instructions on that, that you know, and it's accessible for parents, you know, on a public holiday and what have you, where they can give doses that, you know, for kids up from two and up. So it's, it's an easy, it's an easy one for them to access because, yeah, like I said, kids get sick on public holidays and nighttime. Mm, that's right. Um, look, there's so much, so many other things that we could go through, not the least of which are some of the creams that you use and indeed I use with certain patient groups. But I, I, I think I'd like to investigate a few other of your tip hints and tips and tricks um, with regards to not just how you get medicines into kids, but how you use food because you're a real foodie and I think social media has become an important resource for you um, to not just use things for yourself but also promote the use of good food. So we might investigate that in another podcast. Sure thing. So, Beck, thank you so much for going through those hints and tips today. I, I really appreciate them. I think they're quite funny, but I think you've gotten some really good messages and I do like the way that you give practical messages to people. Um, that, that, you know, they're really important messages, like how to teach a child that it's good to choose good food, you know, that it's really good fun sort of thing. I think they're great messages mm -hmm. that we need to teach each other as a society. Definitely. And it would have been taught that way, you know, in, in more ancient times, for want of a better word. Yeah. In, in a tribal culture. Days of yore. You, they would be... <laughs> yeah, through the hunter, hunting and gathering process, they would have been teaching this kind of like those similar things. You pick this for this and you use that for that and this combines with this. And just because of the way society is set up now, I think we've lost a little bit of that that teaching aspect of, of kids. That we are often telling them, but forgetting we need to teach them. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm -hmm.